Good morning, Harvest. Thank you for signing in with us today. Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father God, we thank you that as we come to your word, we know that it is powerful and effective. And yet we need you to be actively involved in what we're doing here today. We need you to open our eyes so that we will see truths that we haven't seen before. We need you to open our ears and our hearts so that we will put these things into practice and so that they can bring change in our lives. So that's what we ask you to do. Please come Holy Spirit and do this work powerfully amongst us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered uh, what God wants from His church? Maybe if you, if you think about it, you might consider that God wants us to sing to Him, or He wants us to listen to His Word, or, or He wants us to love one another, meet in small groups, serve one another, and maybe going a bit further than that, than that we're, we're, we're here to serve um, our communities and our societies. What is it that God wants from our church? And, and all of those things obviously are good, but many of them um, need to be seen in, in such a way that they are achieving a greater purpose, that they're aiming towards something else. And what, what is that? What does God want from his church? And Paul makes it clear in his letter to Titus that he wants the church to be an agent of transformation. When we think of transformation, when we look at Zimbabwe, for example, we think in terms of political transformation or economic transformation, that's a big one, social transformation, legal transformation. And of course, the church is expected to be involved in all of those areas. But what we need to remember is that the church is in a unique position because the church in partnership with God can bring about eternal transformation. The church can bring about transformation of the heart. All of those other areas of transformation bring about a change on this earth, but they, they don't reconcile people to God. They don't put them in right standing with God so that they can spend an eternity with God in heaven. And that's why heart transformation is such an important thing. That's why the church is in a unique place because we can get involved in all of these other areas of transformation, but we do it to point people towards heart transformation because that's the transformation that really counts. A changed person leads to a changed family, which leads to a changed society. However, let's go back to Crete. Um, Paul considered the young church in Crete uh, and as he looked at it, he could see problems. Issues were preventing the church from being an effective agent of transformation. And the same will be true of us in Zimbabwe today. And to put this in a nutshell, the lifestyle of some Christians was making the good news of God's saving plan in the Lord Jesus repulsive. The way that they lived was at odds with their message. So their message was being rejected, even though it had the key to transformation, a transformation that would lead to eternal life. And I'm sure that you can think of nothing more tragic than that. It would be like your loved one being literally on, on the doorstep of death due to, due to starvation. And, and that person comes across a pile of nutritious mush on the ground, but it looks exactly like a dog turd. <laughs> That's what we're talking about here. It holds the key to life, but because of the way it looks, um, because of what people see, because of, of our reputation, um, it's disguising the fact that it holds the key to life. Now, 
this situation had come about because bad aspects of Cretan uh, society and culture were still contaminating Christians. And in their case, things like laziness and deceitfulness and greed, especially greed for money. And in Zimbabwe, as we talked about two weeks ago, we, we have our own unique cultural and societal problems. But the principle that Paul applies then Although the application might be different, the principle still applies today because principles are universal and timeless. So what is the principle? Here it is. If the church is not measuring up as an agent of transformation, we need to make sure, first of all, that it has sound leadership. I'm sure we're all aware of the 80-20 principle. The idea is that if you concentrate on doing the 20% of the things that will create 80% of the impact, then you're going to get things sorted out. And so we, we could use an image from the Bible, maybe not an 80-20 image, but this idea of a small amount of yeast working its way through the entire dough. Leadership has a disproportionately high effect on the health of the church and in fact on everything. And that's because leaders have an ability to influence others whether for good or for bad. Leadership is, in its, in its essence, in its heart, is about influence. Today we're going to be talking about how, um, how leaders in the church should look. And that might seem, it might seem as though, as we consider that, it doesn't apply to you. But remember that every person is a leader. And that's because every person has a sphere of influence. You, you've got a severe of influence. It extends into your family. It extends into your workplace. It extends into your community. And so every person needs to be a leader because they have a sphere of influence and they need to be exerting influence for the good in that particular area. So today we're going to turn to, uh, to Titus chapter 1 verses 5 to 16 and we're going to extract some principles for transformed leadership. Let me read the passage to you. The, the title in the NIV here is Appointing Elders Who Love What Is Good. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, but rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is God, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Next section, title here, Rebuking Those Who Fail to Do Good. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And this saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no more attention to Jewish myths 
or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. This is God's Word. The first principle is that transformed leadership requires a team of elders in every church. Now, I don't want you to switch off because we've talked about this quite a lot last year, but I, I would like to give you a brief refresher because it's here in the passage today. Verse 5, uh, it says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Three things to notice. First of all, elders is in the plural. That's why we say that each church requires a team of elders. Elders in the plural. Second of all, in every town. There would have been a church in each town. And so the principle is that there's a team of elders in every local church. And then thirdly, Paul uses two Greek words here when he's referring to the same church office of leadership in a local church. The first word that he uses is episkopos, I beg your pardon, is presbyteros, uh, that's in verse 5, and then the second one in verse 7 is episkopos. Now, although he uses two different words, he uses them interchangeably because he's referring to the same office, he's referring to the same person. And some churches have got a bit confused about this, so they make a distinction between um, elders and bishops or overseers. So in some churches you'll have a bishop who is in charge of a number of elders. That's not going to happen at harvest because we want to be true to the scriptures, which is a pity because I wouldn't mind being called Bishop Ian. Uh, I'm sure Craig wouldn't mind being called Bishop Craig. He probably wouldn't even mind being called the Pope. But as I say, it's not going to happen at harvest. Harvest has a team of elders. Each site Remember, we are a multi-site church, one church, many sites. Each site is overseen by an elder, and he's going to build a team of understudy elders to help him. And of course, that's in keeping with the principle that Craig talked about last week, namely that transformation needs to be generational. We need to be bringing up people behind us to take over from us, people that we can hand the baton on to. So, in short, this first principle Transformed leadership requires a team of elders in every local church. That's, that's what the structure looks like. But what about the people who work, the leaders who work within that structure, within that team? What are they going to look like? And that brings us to the second principle, is that transformed leadership flows from good character. This is fascinating because society values ability and skills over character. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in our schools, in our sports systems, we're constantly working on a person's skill and ability and often overlooking character flaws in that person. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, one of Gail's nephews used to share a room with Oscar Pistorius at Pretoria Boys High. So they, they shared a room together. Uh, we're famous Wow, can you believe it? <laughs> Gail's nephew shared a room with Oscar Pistorius. But the reason why he shared a room with Oscar is because no one else wanted to share a room with him. He had anger issues 
right from the get-go. But those anger issues were overlooked and the only thing that was developed in his life were his skills and abilities as a runner. And just look at the tragic consequences of that. And Paul is not going to allow the church to make the same mistake. Most of his requirements for eldership are character, character qualities and not particular skills and abilities. Now, of course, we are going to develop skills and abilities, but those need to flow from the right character. It's the character that needs to be right first. We don't see in Paul's list here things like a Bible college qualification or an MBA or a magnetic personality or even an ability to speak without a stammer. Just remember Moses. Moses couldn't even speak to the people of Israel. He couldn't speak to Pharaoh because he stammered so much. His brother had to do the speaking on his behalf. And yet God saw fit to use him to lead an entire nation. So it starts with the character. Just, just glance through the text now in your Bibles and we'll see just how much Paul's instructions to Titus uh, had to do with character. He starts off and he says, An elder must be a husband of one wife. In other words, he needs to be a faithful person. An elder must not be characterized by arrogance, by having a short fuse, drunkenness, violence or greed. All of that's in verse 7. And then he flips to the other side of the coin. Those are negative things. Now he talks about positive things in verse 8. We need to be hospitable, um, a lover of good, self-controlled, not flying off the handle, not constantly being distracted by temptation, upright, holy, and disciplined. So Paul values character highly. The question is, and this is quite important, how do we know whether a person has a good character? And I, you know, I've been thinking about this in my own terms. You know, um, if Catherine brings a bloke home, I don't really mind too much if he's got big flappy ears and buck teeth. What I want to know is, is he a man of character? When we were at um, Cara and Dan's wedding recently, people kept talking about Dan's character, about the fact that he was a kind man. And so that's what we want to know. You know, what is the person like? And, and how can we determine that? Brings us to the third principle. A transformed leader is confirmed by reputation. If a person is a bad character, he will end up having a bad reputation. Bad character cannot be hidden forever. Just remember that, folks. And if you're a young person, remember that. You're not going to get away with it. Can't be hidden forever. You know, there's that proverb, the saying that you're not going to get smoke without a fire. That's what it's talking about. And so Paul says here that an elder must be above reproach. And he uses exactly the same phrase again in verse 7 for emphasis. He's talking about a person's reputation. Is this reputation in the church or beyond? It's both. We need to have good reputations, not only in the church, but also in our communities. So when Paul's writing in his letter to Timothy, he, he writes in 1 Timothy 3 verse 7, an elder must be well thought of by outsiders. Paul has the same thing in mind when he's talking about bad leaders in verse 16. He writes, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, by their actions. So on the surface they appear to know God, but over a period of time we begin to realize they don't know Him because their actions are at odds with their claims. So the works reveal 
the hidden truth. The reputation reveals the hidden truth. So, wh where have we got to so far? Transformed leadership requires a team of elders. It flows from good character and it is confirmed by reputation. Number four, transformed leadership involves wise governance. And once again, how do we know that a person is wise? How do we know that someone is going to be a wise governor? Well, Paul gives us a very simple solution to this problem. He says, just look at his family. Verse 6, an elder is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Paul says a similar thing in 1 Timothy. Um, he puts it this way, an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Have you noticed here what Paul doesn't say? He doesn't say that an elder must be able to manage his business well, or be able to manage his parachurch organization or his ministry well. Those things are important, but what we really need to know is does this, is this man wise enough to recognize that the most important relationships in life are his relationships with his spouse and with his children and the people in his household? Because if he doesn't recognize that, if those things are being sacrificed on the altar of work and other um, projects, then he's not a wise man. He doesn't know what is close to God's heart, which is the family it all starts with the family. The family is the building block of community. So it involves wise governance. Here's another one. Transformed leadership is based on truth. Last week, we took time to explain that there is such a thing as absolute truth. There is such a thing as objective truth. It's not really PC to make absolute truth claims in our society. But the reality is that there, are, there is absolute truth. I mean, we see it in the physical world. I could say, well, my subjective reality is that gravity doesn't exist. I can't see it. I can't feel it. Well, if I step off a roof, I'm going to fall whether I believe in gravity or not. There, in the physical world, there is objective truth. And it's true for the whole way that God has set things up. You know, He defines it because He created it. Don't you think he's qualified? Don't you think he should reserve the right to tell us what the truth is and what is right and what is wrong for us as human beings? But how has he revealed it? He's done it through Jesus and the Bible. And that's why Paul writes in verse 9, Therefore an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy, pardon, trustworthy word as taught. In those days, they didn't have the New Testament. So the apostles were teaching the inspired word of God, the inspired word, the trustworthy word as taught. And so that the elder may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the purpose um, of an elder is to give instruction and also to bring correction. Does this mean that all elders need to be able to stand in this kind of a setting or at church on a Sunday meeting and give instruction? No, it doesn't mean that. 
we all have different levels of ability and gifting in instruction, but all elders should be able to do it, even if it's one-on-one, -on -one. and most importantly, they need to be able to understand what true doctrine is and to identify false doctrine and to deal with those who are promoting it. Why do we need to be so strong with false doctrine? One of the reasons is that false doctrine does not bring true transformation. It doesn't bring transformation of the, of the heart. In fact, false doctrine actually leads people to become worse than they were before. Look at, look at what he says here. He says, they, the people who believe in the false doctrine and are instructing others in it, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans always lies, evil beasts, etc., etc. These bad leaders had incorrect, incorrect doctrine because they were teaching what they ought not to teach. Paul makes that clear. And they were teaching it from the wrong motive. So they were teaching the wrong doctrine. They were teaching it from the wrong motive, namely for selfish gain. And what this was doing was that it was upsetting whole families. And we can see from the context that this upset was referring to bad behavior. These people were ending up getting um, shipwrecked because they were reverting to all sorts of bad behavior that they saw these bad leaders modeling um, and that their doctrine tempted them to get involved in. Then the last principle. Last principle is that transformational leadership is stewardship. This is really important. Paul writes in verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Stewardship, what, it, what is it? Stewardship is taking responsibility for something that belongs to someone else, else on their behalf. So, elders manage the church, but they do it on God's behalf. And even if you're not an elder, whatever it is, your work, your family, these things have been given to you by God. You didn't earn them. You didn't deserve them. They've been given to you to look after on God's behalf, representing Him, doing it in a way that He would do it. And folks, the church belongs to God. I mean, think of it. It's actually described as Christ's precious bride. This means that the church does not belong to any man or to any group of men. The church does not exist for the leaders. We need to be careful about that in Zimbabwe because leaders often believe that the institution they are leading is there for them. Isn't that what we see in our country? Our political leaders, <laughs> they see the entire nation as existing for their own enrichment. This is not the case. And it's the same in the church. We've seen it happening in the church. We've had false prophets who are leading the church in such a way as to enrich only themselves and not there for God or for the people. And what makes the sin even worse is that leaders like that appear to be serving God. And, and that's the worst kind of hypocrisy. Imagine using God's church as a means to your own selfish ends while at the same time appearing to work for Him. We appear to be so good, but actually we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves. 
So just in conclusion, we've looked at these six principles for transformed leadership. We've applied them today to elders because that's what Paul is doing. But these principles apply to you as well. Elders provide an example for everyone to follow, right? So if these things apply to elders and they're setting an example for the church, it means they apply for you. And that's because everybody, every one of us is a leader. Why do we say that? Well, it's because leadership is about influence and everybody has a sphere of influence. Why not survey it? Why not plot, about, plot it out? Why, why not think about where the border of your sphere of influence goes and then start to apply some of these principles in your sphere of influence? Start being a transformed leader. Because if we can concentrate on that 20%, we'll have that multiplication effect happening. The explosion, the 80%, will be achieved. So I would challenge you today. Let's become transformational leaders in our sphere of influence. Because leadership is powerful. It has an explosive effect. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these principles. I thank you that you teach them so clearly through Paul in his letter to Titus. I thank you that they're applicable. And so I just want to stand um, representing ch uh, Harvest today and every person who wants to respond to this message. I just want to stand uh, representing them and say, Father God, here we are. We want to do your will. We want to become transformed leaders in our sphere of influence so that we can be agents for transformation and change the destiny of people for eternity. We ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Folks, uh, it's been so good to, to be with you, you here today. I've just so enjoyed being in this lovely setting. I hope you enjoy um, hearing this message where you are. I hope it's challenging and I uh, wish you all the best for the week ahead. Cheers for now.